Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have something a little different than normal. We're putting up one of the, our midweek classes that we're doing over the next couple of months. We're going to do once a month called The Table, where we take a different topic and put it on the table. Then I do a little lecture on it, and we have some discussion. So in this one, we're looking at the dominant views of hell throughout Christian uh, history, and actually the, the development of hell as a concept. And um, so we'll be covering eternal conscious torment, annihilationism, Christian universalism, as well as the history of the term hell. So we'll go ahead and head to the class. It's a long one, so hopefully you'll find it interesting. Thanks. Well, welcome to Hell's Kitchen. What's the matter with you people coming out to dinner and a discussion on hell? I know. <laughs> you didn't even get any vegan food. There's a McDonald's down the road. They do vegan fries there still? They were lying about it for a while, weren't they? They were lying. McDonald's. I heard a fascinating podcast by uh, Malcolm Gladwell recently talking about McDonald's french fries. And the thing that used to make them taste so good is that they were cooked in beef tallow. But then they discontinued the recipe back in the late 80s, the mid-80s, and then they've never been the same since. But anyway, what's that got to do with anything? Well, welcome to the table. What we're going to be doing here tonight and over the next, uh, uh, well, we're not going to do this for several weeks, but the idea, uh, what we're trying to do here is take one night a month for the next few months and dig into some topic that is a little too cumbersome or uh, in-depth to look into on a Sunday morning, but uh, issues that, that really have ramifications on a lot of other areas. Um, And so tonight we're going to be talking about hell. And on your tables you can find, I think in the middle of the table there is a little printed up summary of the three uh, dominant views of hell. And then there's another thing that I passed out that is probably poorly printed for some of you uh, that goes into a little bit more depth on some of the um, terms that we're going to be looking at tonight. Now, one thing I want to state as we get started tonight, um, we're, I'm not, I've, I've got my own kind of view on hell, which I don't mind sharing at some point tonight, but the purpose of this is not to try to establish this is North Shore Vineyard's stance on hell uh, or to try to convince you of something. Basically, what I'm trying to do with these, these things called the table each month is, is present the various ways different Christians have landed on these positions and why. And when we look at hell, um, the three, three main positions, the three dominant ones throughout the church history are eternal conscious torment, uh, <laughs> yay, uh, annihilationism, and uh, Christian universalism. And so it might surprise you that each one of these positions 
is supported by a ton of scripture. So what this this little thing tonight is going to help us do is actually look at the scriptures in context to, to take in uh, to account uh, the culture, the times, and, and really get into some of the things that have to do with the way that we need to approach the Bible when we're looking into any issue. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to kind of talk about some of these things. We'll open it up for questions. So if you get questions along the way, uh, just go ahead and jot your questions down. I'm going to take a pause every few minutes, and we'll kind of talk about whatever uh, pops up. Um, but one thing that I want to state from the beginning, um, it, it's okay to have a little debate on things, but but we're, we're really not trying to beat each other down and argue. Uh, you can save that for Facebook in the morning. Um, <laughs> we're actually just trying to, uh, as I said recently, part of the, the reason we're doing this is we want to be a, a community of hospitality, and we want to be able to, um, you may think that somebody is crazy for believing this idea. Well, just listen to them and try to understand where they're coming from, okay? And that, that's all we ask, is that we can just create a space, and that in this space, we can kind of hear the Holy Spirit together. So, without further ado, welcome to hell. <laughs> I, hell, that's the way, yeah, we, we, can, we can do so many jokes tonight uh, on hell. <laughs> um, why, why the heck do I want to do a class on hell? I don't know. I just, I found out, I, I just know in my own life, um, it is one of those issues that I really didn't think about much in my early years. But at some point, I think every one of us has had friends or relatives that have died. And I was raised in, in a type of Christianity that said, if any of these people die and they haven't prayed the prayer to receive Jesus in their heart, they're getting tortured forever in eternity. Um, one, one funny story I have is about four years ago, there was a lady that was coming to our church who had been like a missionary over in South Korea. And she was taking a break for a period of time before she was going to go back. And she was coming to our church. And we were doing this little thing on Monday nights called Sin Night at the Vineyard, uh, Service Industry Night. And um, it was kind of a little thing like this where we'd eat a meal, do a talk, have a discussion. And it was geared to people who work on Sundays and couldn't come to church. And as with most of these kinds of things, I'm usually up here a few hours before it gets started. And she showed up about 30 minutes before it got started. And she said, uh, you mind if, if we take a couple of minutes to talk before everybody gets here? She's like, I'd really like to talk to you. I was like, sure, no problem. What do you want to talk about? She goes, well, I've really been struggling with some doubts lately. Well, she caught me on a bad day because I'd been struggling with doubts too, <laughs> Earlier, a few days before that meeting, I don't know if y'all remember this story. It was one of the most disturbing stories I've, I ever heard reported. I think it was up in Cleveland, Ohio. They, they found this guy who had uh, held these, these three women captive for 10 years, kept them chained up and locked in cages and sexually assaulted them over and over. And, and one of them finally escaped and... That was like weighing heavy on my heart. So when this lady said, yeah, I'm struggling with doubts, I said, you're struggling with doubts. I'm struggling with doubts. 
because the evangelicalism that I've grown up in says that these three women who were kept in cages for 10 years and tortured and abused sexually, if one of them was not a believer and gets in a car and drives across town and has a fatal accident, then my beliefs tell me that this person is going to suffer worse from God. (laughs) And this poor lady just looks up at me like, oh, crap, I just asked (laughs) the wrong question. But isn't that our central question when it comes to hell is, is really how do we... How do we merge, how do we harmonize this picture of Jesus, of God? You know, we're told emphatically in in, in 1 John that God is love. We're not told that God is anything else but love. That God's very being, his substance, is love. And we certainly see that demonstrated in Jesus. We see that Jesus extends compassion, mercy, Even when Jesus is hanging on a cross, Jesus demonstrates the very thing he preached. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. What does Jesus do with his dying breath? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. How do you merge that picture of unconditional love with unconditional retribution in hell? Like, how do we get there? How do we hold these two things? Um, and that's, that's a big question. I, I started wrestling with this probably back in, uh, I, in earnest, probably back around 2003, 2004. Um, and over the years, I've, I've looked at it on a number. I've, I've read multiple books. And I, if, if anybody wants to look into this deeper, after tonight, you won't need to. But if you do... There's some books that I would highly recommend. That that uh, one that I'm, I've actually learned a lot in preparing for this class is Four Views of Hell, uh, where they take a different theologian, Bible scholar, on a different position, and they all write their papers and critique each other's papers. So you get to see how they uh, kind of do these things. There's there's plenty of other books as well, though. One of my favorite books uh, was by C.S. Lewis. It's called uh, The Great Divorce, and uh, C.S. Lewis, I, I think, if you haven't read that one, if you're, if you're into audiobooks, that's one of my favorite audiobooks. It's, it's done by a terrific guy with a British accent, and uh, it's only about a five-hour-long audiobook, but uh, it's more of a you know, fictional kind of understanding of hell. But I think, as with a lot of art, sometimes art gets at the hard issues a lot better than uh, other ways of approaching it. So... Before we get into the dominant views of hell throughout church history, I need to talk a little bit about just the words. (laughs) If you got a printed out copy that you can read, (laughs) um, it says hell. The word hell is is an English word that may be in part from Old Norse myth. Theological hell, H-E-L, or from Proto-Germanic Germanic, Halija, one who covers up or hides something. In Norse mythology, the name of Loki's daughter who rules over the dead and the Nifheim, Nifelheim, and the lowest of all worlds, the Nifelmist, 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 Nifelmist. A pagan concept and word fitted to a Christian idiom. So one of the problems we have to, to, to deal with right off the bat before we get into the views of hell 
is a problem of translation. If you are a Bible translator, uh, you have to be able to deal with the original manuscripts, or as close as you can get to the original manuscripts, which is uh, the, the task of Bible scholarship. So, uh, yes, I don't know if there's any more that are legible, but here's, here's three right here. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah, Bible, Bible translators. Uh, say um, Andy is a Bible translator. He's got a degree in ancient Greek. He sits down to translate the Bible. Well, the problem with Greek, translating Greek to English, is that oftentimes Greek has multiple words for which we have no equivalent in, in, uh, in English. So, for instance, the word love, that we, we translate love in English, actually encompasses four or five different words in, in ancient Greek. So you got eros and agape, but in our language, it's just love. But hopefully, I don't have the same kind of love for my wife that I do for pizza, right? You know, it'd be nice if I had another, another word to phrase that, but in English, it's all love. I love my wife. I love my country. I love puppies. I love pizza. Uh, I love all of you. Can you feel the love tonight? And so, so part of the problem with translation is you're going from one language to another. And so you can either go about it in two different ways when you're translating something. You can either try to find a concept in English that is similar to a concept in Greek and then just use that word to explain what the Greek thing is. Or you can do what is called transliteration. Um, a good example of transliteration would be hallelujah uh, or hosanna. I, I remember leading worship in uh, Indonesia back when I was like 23 years old. I'm on the island of Bali. And when I go to other countries where I don't speak their language, the songs that I sing have hallelujah or hosanna in them. Why? Because those are transliterated words, and those are words that most languages don't have a concept for, so they just actually take the original Hebrew word and transliterate it. They don't translate it. They actually just take the word, and now you just got, you're left with, I mean, does anybody know what hallelujah means, by the way? Well, you're, you, you don't count. You're a seminary student. <laughs> Which, which gets to part of the problem of transliteration. You end up with words that you don't know the meaning of. Hallelujah. Doesn't it mean praise God? Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, so, so hallelujah is a phrase that, that, that embodied praise God, but they didn't translate it just praise God in English because it was a specific word in Hebrew, so they just brought the whole word over. And so our word, hallelujah, is, is close to the, the Hebrew, uh, even though it, we can't spell it because we don't have Hebrew characters. So when you're, when you're translating the scriptures, New Testament was written in Greek, Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but even the New Testament, writing in Greek, writing the stories in Greek, it was written about stories that occurred in Aramaic. So the people of Jerusalem, Judea, they were speaking Aramaic, which was a Semitic language, which was related to Hebrew. So that was kind of the common language. So you can see how difficult this, this can get to preserve some kind of meaning in the process. But I say all that to get to hell. So we've got hell, which is an English, an old English word that, that pops on the scene around 750 A.D., 
But hell, as you see right here, it's, it's already got a meaning before the, the Bible interpreters use this term to refer to what we're going to see as four different terms in the Bible. So what four terms does this, this version hell from Norse mythology, what, what four terms does this encompass? Um, oh, and by the way, when you look at... Um, the Norse idea of H-E-L, that's fairly similar to the Greek concept of Hades. So there is some equivalent there. But there are four terms that hell is used to cover. The first we will talk about is Sheol. Or you can say Sheol. Sheol. Sheol, yes. Devil's going to go to Sheol. Um, Sheol is a place of darkness to which all the dead go, both righteous and the unrighteous, regardless of the moral choices made in life, a place of stillness and darkness cut off from life and from God. So in the Old Testament, their only concept of the afterlife is this, Sheol. There's no, there's, there's occasional mention of heaven when it talks about God, like Isaiah chapter 6. I was in the spirit of the Lord on the Lord's day. I was caught up into to the, or wait, that was Revelations. Uh, when Isaiah is caught up into the heavens, he sees, he sees the heavenly kingdom. But there's no mention in the Old Testament of heaven as a destination, right? So when you die, according to the Old Testament scriptures, you just die. You're, you're, you may exist in some shade or shadow of yourself, but, but you won't have a personality. You won't have consciousness. There may be some echo, uh, but, but you're basically dead. And that's why uh, David in the Psalms would, would write stuff like, can the dead praise you, God? <laughs> kind of a no-brainer. Like, no, they can't praise you. I'm going to praise you in the land of the living because it's only living people who can sing your praise. Um, so Sheol is, is basically, you're dead. It's over. Game over. Uh, the second concept we'll look at is Hades. Now, Sheol is uh, Hebrew. Hades is Greek. Now, I wrote down in your notes, um, Hades, the Greek realm of the dead, and the God who ruled it. So Hades is a place, but it's also a person. Uh, if you read Greek mythology, there was this war uh, between the Titans, the old gods, and these new guys that were trying to, to usurp them and take their place. The battle was won by Zeus and uh, Poseidon and Hades, and they divided up the realms. And so Zeus Zeus got to rule the earth, Poseidon got to rule the sea, and then uh, Hades got to rule the underworld. And so Hades, under the Greek idea, it was um, the unseen one. That, that's what the word actually means. Um, basically, Hades is the, is the realm where all the dead go, good or bad, you go to Hades, it's underground, it's dark, there's some bad stuff going on, but it's not quite as developed of an idea as, as 
uh, Dante would go with it in 1300 with uh, Dante's Inferno. Um, But in Hades, every person would go there for a period of time, and then you would be judged. And in Hades, you would be judged, and if if you were uh, uh, really bad... You'd be punished eternally. If you were kind of indifferent, you had to stay there, but it's not like you were necessarily getting tortured. It's just like it kind of sucks to be here, and you're going to be here forever. Um, And if you were a virtuous person, then you would get to go on to Elysium, which was kind of the Greek version of heaven. So Hades, that's basically all Hades was. Now, Now understand that Hades... Is, is a concept predated the New Testament by several centuries. So you, you can find writings about Hades and Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Um, but it was a, a solidified concept in the Roman world by the time the New Testament comes along. Then in 1300 AD, a guy by the name of Dante wrote this uh, Inferno book, and he gave us Hades on steroids. Uh, if you want to look at the most influential person on our modern thoughts concerning hell, it's not Jesus, it's not the Old Testament, it's actually Dante. Because Dante gives us, in, in Dante's Inferno, this was written during medieval times, uh, 1300s. Most people did not know how to read at that time. But you can bet that Dante's dramatic, colorful stories of people being tortured endlessly in highly creative ways uh, really captured the imagination of medieval people. And it became, if you look at the art from the medieval, have you ever seen some of this medieval art of, of, of hell? It's, it's some scary stuff. I mean, it's like whacked out. But you don't find those kind of pictures before Dante. Dante uh, was a poet. And in Dante's Inferno, his guide is actually Virgil, a Roman poet, a famous Roman poet for, from a couple of centuries before the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament. So um, Hades on steroids because of Dante. I'll just put via Dante here. Anybody got any questions on anything so far? Okay. Um, And then we go to Gehenna. Gehenna takes us back to a Hebrew concept. Although it it appears in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now here's the interesting with, with Gehenna. And again, we get back to Bible translation. Gehenna occurs multiple times in the Old Testament, but it is always translated the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, Gehenna is just kind of a, a shorthand for the same thing. But in the Old Testament, they'd never translated it hell, but for some reason, uh, when it comes to Jesus' sayings, they lumped it under this category of hell. What is Gehenna? Gehenna is an actual place. I've been there. I went to Gehenna a few years ago, went to hell, got the T-shirt, and uh, <laughs> uh, Gehenna is this, this valley right outside of Jerusalem. So when you're standing on the walls of the city of Jerusalem, you can look over, and there's Gehenna. It's a valley. And so Gehenna is the word that's used most often for hell in the New Testament, and it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. So Jesus uh, is credited with saying more about hell than anybody else in the Bible, but actually the word that Jesus is using is Gehenna. Now, 
I, I want to unpack this a bit, so I put the scriptures here, because I think this is very important for us to kind of get at what's going on here. Jeremiah, before I get to Jeremiah, I'm going to do 2 Kings 23. I think it's on your page too, if you got it. Um, oh, bottom of one. Yeah, we've got slightly different notes here. Um, 2 Kings 23, Josiah, who was a good king, says he brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places. The high places were, were places where they would sacrifice to uh, other idols. Uh, from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense, he broke down the gateway at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which was on the left of the city gate. Although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priest. He declared Topeth, which is the valley of Ben-Hena, Ben-Hinnom, which that means Gehenna. Um, he, he desecrated Topeth, which is the valley of Ben-Gehinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire of Molech. He removed from the entrance of the temple of the Lord the horses the kings of Judah had desec- dedicated to the sun. All right, now let's go back to the passage before that, which is Jeremiah seven thirty-one through 34. They have built the high places of Topheth, Topheth in the valley of, I'm just going to call it Gehenna, so we know Gehenna, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this people, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Gehenna, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness to the voices of the bride and the bridegroom and the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, and the land will become desolate." There's another passage in Jeremiah 19 and one in Jeremiah 32. I won't read it because they say pretty much the same thing. What was Gehenna? It was a place that was considered cursed. And you can see it going all the way back to the Old Testament. They did some bad things there. They got so corrupted that the leaders were actually uh, erecting an altar, a monument to Molech, a pagan god, and they were burning their kids alive to, to sacrifice to this deity. So Jeremiah... And Josiah, they pronounce a curse on that place. And, and it's, it's now, and, and that, that's one of the terms that, that Jeremiah uses over and over, that this place that was called Gehenna is now going to be called the Valley of Destruction. That's its new name, which is important. Because when Jesus comes along, it's, it's interesting. Jesus uses these, these two terms. Uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, he talks about, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. If you ever go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a city on a hill. And, and God's plan for Jerusalem from, from all the way back in the Old Testament was that Jerusalem would be a city on a hill, a light to the nations. Jerusalem is the crossroads of the Mediterranean world. And Jerusalem was meant to be this place where the temple of God was and that people would be coming from all over the world to uh, do commerce and that they would they would experience God there, and they would want to know God. But unfortunately, Jesus, 
he, Jesus actually pronounces a judgment on Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you like a mother hen would gather her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. Instead, you kill the prophets that come to you. And so Jesus pronounces uh, an apocalyptic uh, judgment on Jerusalem. He says that, that the days are coming, that it's going to get really bad. And if you're a nursing mom, it's going to be a really bad day for you. He said there's going to be two taken and one left. And he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. This is interesting, though, because if you understand what Jesus is saying there, it really helps you understand that Jerem- Jesus is, is really in the line of the Jeremiah prophetic tradition. And Jesus is saying the same things all these years later that Jeremiah was saying to Jerusalem. Why we translate Gehenna hell in the New Testament and we don't translate it hell in the Old Testament, I don't know. But I suspect what Jesus is actually getting at here is that if you do not live into the call of God that God has for you, you're going to cease being a city on the hill. Instead, you're going to be like this cursed place in the valley. What was the Valley of Gehenna known for? Well, uh, if you were a criminal, they threw your body out there. Did any of y'all ever grow up in a neighborhood where you had that one house that was spooky or, or, or somewhere around you? And, and you had this mythology about that one place. And, and you know, uh, I remember growing up out in West Texas, there was this little ranch house out in the, uh, out in the desert and we called it Boo Radley's or Bo Diddley's. I can't remember. Um, but it was, it was always spoken of that the windmill would always be turning even when there wasn't any wind because that's where he hung himself after he killed his family. And we'd go out there and freak ourselves out. Well, that's kind of the way Gehenna was uh, in the first century. It was a cursed place. Nobody built houses there. It's a place where they would throw dead bodies. It eventually came a garbage dump. And you would have fires burning out there because you're burning garbage. You would have maggots and worms and all kinds of things and dogs. And it was a desolate place. So when you understand that historically speaking... You know, one of the questions about Gehenna was Jesus speaking of eternity or destruction. Because if you look at this from a historical perspective, in 70 AD, what happens in Jerusalem? Anybody know? Yeah, Jerusalem is sacked by the Romans. They besiege it. And you can actually read uh, Josephus, the, the famous first century uh, historian. Josephus talks about how things got so bad within Jerusalem during the Roman siege that they were throwing the bodies of the dead because the dead were accumulating in there. They were throwing the bodies off the wall into the valley of Gehenna. If we look at it historically speaking, it, it, it could be possible that what Jesus is talking about in the Gospels, uh, this contrast between the light of the world and, and the garbage dump outside the city, these were two possibilities of where Jerusalem could go. And it's possible that what actually happened with Gehenna was that Je- Jerusalem turned into it in 70 AD. The city was demolished and it resembled the garbage dump outside. Any questions on that before we go to the next one? I'm just so thorough. Um, the, last, the last term is 
Tartarus. Oh, yeah, tar- Tartarus. This is where we get the term Tartar. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Never play me in Balderdash. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Tartarus gets us back to a Greek word, a Greek concept. Tartarus is the deep abyss that is used as a dungeon to torment the suffering for the wicked and the prison for the Titans. So after there was this big battle in Greek mythology between the Titans and folks like Zeus and Poseidon and Hades, um, when Zeus and them win, guess what they do? They lock up all the old guys in Tartarus, which was kind of the inner circle of hell. It was the the, the worst place in, in, uh, in Hades. And... Um, this concept makes it into the Bible in one place, which is Second Peter 2. It says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. First uh, Enoch, which is an apocryphal book, um, state that God placed the archangel Uriel in charge of the world and of Tartarus. Tartarus is generally understood as the place where 200 fallen watchers are in prison. If you ever want some weird reading, read the book of Enoch. Um, That's fun. Uh, So basically, you've got four different concepts. Do you realize how different these four concepts are? And now they're all lumped under this one word, which is uh, a very different concept, at least from Sheol and Gehenna. It, It slightly resembles Hades. But we get... To, to get to our modern view of hell, what we've seen is Dante's version of hell has kind of won the day and become the dominant thing in our imagination. So, any questions on Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus, or observations? Yes. That, that's a question. Uh, I I don't know. I I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> I I suspect that that. Yeah, I I suspect part of it is uh, you know I don't. Latin Vulgate, yeah. Yeah, and that, that is a thing to consider because not only, you know, ideally you want to translate it from the original text into the next language. When you start translating things multiple times, it's kind of like making copies of copies of copies. So I, that, that's, a, that's a good thing to, good question to ask. I don't have an answer, though. Any other questions? It could have been like that. <laughs> We're inventing heresy right now. Uh, j- just if any, if anybody had any questions on what's been covered thus far. Oh, he asked it. I know. Oh, what was the question? 
He's talking to you. And I'm not even sure when, when you get your first English version of the Bible, because that might not have been till after like 1000 A.D. So it might have been, might have been King James, yeah. So that's 500 years ago. Yeah, well, that and that that's part that's part of the so um so I'm going to put this over here, Young's literal translation. If, if there's a there's a great website called Bible Gateway, you can go on to Bible Gateway and you can pick whatever version of the Bible you want. Uh if you want to get down, if you want to read the Bible and have these terms Hades, Tartarus, whatever included, type in these verses to Young's literal translation and it will give you a literal literal translation. They won't try to adapt it with concepts, so you will have Hades and stuff like that. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put a little spectrum here. Okay, we're going to call this uh, the Message Bible. <laughs> uh, we'll put New American Standard here, RSV. Uh, we'll kind of say this is the middle. Middle of the road's kind of NIV. You got New Living Translation. Um, so this is kind of a spectrum of, of different ways to approach Bible translation. Like Eugene Peterson in The Message, some people, the message drives them crazy because he, uh, and, and it drives me crazy on a few passages, but Eugene Peterson tries to capture the spirit of it. And so sometimes he ignores like a lot of the uh, original words or tries to get phrases that capture the concepts rather than words. But it is a, a paraphrase uh, whereas New American Standard would be a very wooden, literal translation. Uh, King James would be somewhere in here as well. But part of that is just you have to make certain choices when you're, when you're doing the Bible. And so one of those questions would be, uh, do I want to adapt 
these ideas to the modern idiom, you know, like, do I want to say, uh, instead of in Noah's Ark, that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, maybe I want to say, it was raining cats and dogs for, for, you know, maybe I want to say something that actually brings it to the current idiom. Well, that may make it more easy for people to understand, but, and this could be part of the problem with hell, just because you understand it today when I say raining cats and dogs, this may go on for another 500 years. That idea may stick in here, and then we get so far removed that we, we've lost the meaning of it. We, that, that phrase is, out of, is, is not spoken anymore, and, and that could be what, what is even going on with some of this Bible translation stuff. But that's, we're probably actually going to do a whole night on, on Bible translation because I think that's anything you're looking at that is a serious, um, serious consideration. And, and some of this too is is even in even the Bible scholars they're still trying to figure out what some of these archaic words from Greek. I mean, there's there's still some words. It's it's not uh, it, it's not like translating modern Japanese into uh, English or something. Um, one last concept that is not actually lumped under the term hell, but uh, it's certainly related. Revelations uh, is, is the lake of fire. Revelation 19.20, for the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Revelations 20.10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelations twenty fourteen through 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So you actually have Hades listed as an actual place, but it's thrown into the fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then Revelations 21 18, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus, and the lake of fire. So, and just one other thing to complicate things a little bit more before we start uncomplicating them. <laughs> um, Revelation, as I said a couple of years ago when we were doing a series on it, Revelation is uh, an example of a genre of literature for, we, for which we have no equivalent in English. It's called apocalyptic literature. So uh, apocalyptic literature existed a little bit in the, in the Old Testament prophets, uh, but Revelation is certainly an apocalyptic book. Uh, my problem with a lot of modern-day fundamentalists, when they come to the Bible, they often take literally a lot of the things of, of Revelations, but then when it comes to uh, hell, the most literal thing to do would be to call Gehenna, you know, call hell Gehenna, but they, they actually get more metaphorical with that. I think probably what we need to do is get literal with Gehenna, get a little bit figurative with the apocalyptic literature, because apocalyptic literature was meant to be taken 
Uh, I, I, you know, there's some, I don't think we're ever going to see like people riding actual horses, um, <laughs> like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, these were all symbolic pictures of something going to happen. So learning where to be literal and part of being literal is accepting a literal literary genre the way it was intended to be read. Okay. Let's go to eternal conscious torment. These are a few, so, so basically, this is the dominant view, at least in the, the Western church. How many of y'all grew up in a church that taught eternal conscious torment? All right. Anybody grow up scared that you were going to end up there? <laughs> um, when I was 11 years old, I was at a crusade out in uh, Midland, Texas. There was a guy, some of you older folks might remember him, named Arthur Blessed. Does anybody remember Arthur Blessed? He was this dude who carried a cross around the world, and he did this big crusade out in Midland, Texas. And uh, he did an altar call for those who felt called to be preachers. And I was 11 years old, and I was like, I want to be a preacher. And so I went up for that. And promptly after, you know, having this call into ministry, I'm in sixth grade. And I begged my parents to send me to a Christian school because I need to get serious about this stuff. And so they let me go to this very fundamentalist Baptist school that I was only there for about three months, but it pretty much inoculated me for religion for the rest of my life. Uh, I, you can blame them for my attitudes now. But uh, we would have a chapel service in the morning, and quite often this chapel service was hellfire and damnation. I mean, that's the way we started the day. And uh, it was, I remember hearing some gruesome stories of, of people who had been burned in, in real life, you know, and then they would end up, if you think that's bad, getting nitroglycerin on you and getting your face burned off, it's going to be like that forever if you don't accept Jesus into your heart. And I'm like, ah, uh, that's eternal conscious torment. So, Eternal conscious torment means it's forever, you're awake, and it's tormenting. Um, now, <laughs> this is a, a lot of the eternal conscious torment uh, imagery is based, no doubt, on what Jesus said. It also incorporates those passages from Revelation and several things. But I'm going to read some of the main scriptures used to back up this position, and then we can kind of unpack this. Isaiah 66, 24, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. That's an Old Testament passage. By the way, that one's actually talking about Gehenna, um, and that actually was a prophecy that actually got fulfilled, if you look at it in one light. Daniel 12, 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting content. Contempt, not content. <laughs> yes. Matthew 5.22, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. Matthew five twenty nine. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. Matthew seven thirteen. enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Matthew ten twenty eight. do not be afraid of those killing the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able both to kill both soul and body, who is able both soul and body to destroy in Gehenna. That must be uh, Young's literal translation there. It's cumbersome. Um, Matthew 13, 37, the one who sowed good seed is the son of man, the field, uh, as the weeds are pulled up and burned the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The man, son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 49 through 50, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blaming furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, we'll go down to, this is the sheep and the ghost passage. We'll pick it up in uh, Matthew twenty five forty one. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Um, They will answer, Lord, when would we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment with the righteous to eternal life. Now, we get to these other passages, which are basically similar passages, but just in Mark and Luke, so I'm not going to go over all of them. But what is one of the assumptions under the eternal conscious torment uh, idea here? Burning? One of the assumptions is the eternal part. Um, And this is where... This is, again, where where we can probably see the influence of Greek thought on the early church because, as I said in the Old Testament, Hebrew people, they didn't think of the eternality of the soul. That was not one of their concepts, but the Greeks had been thinking that stuff up for centuries before... Um, the New Testament come along. Um, so when you read, so one of the assumptions that when you read these passages is, um, so Matthew 25, verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment. So the assumption is that they will be punished eternally, right? And that's where we get, um, so, and I, I'm, I'm, pointing this out because when we get to the next view, annihilationism, this is where these two views actually take a lot of the same scriptures but come up with different conclusions. So 
eternal conscious torment views all these passages, the, the underlying assumption is that human beings are already created eternal beings. As soon as we're created, we will have life without end, whether uh, in hell or whether in heaven. That's more of a Greek idea, not a Hebrew idea, but it is an idea that is fundamental to this idea. So, which brings me to annihilationism, because so the difference between annihilationism and eternal, eternal conscious torment, eternal conscious torment views that everybody's soul is eternal. Annihilationism looks at the eternal part being the destruction. So the punishment is eternal. So um, I'm going to read a little bit in, uh, of support on the annihilationist position. What are some other words for this, Brandon? Terminal punishment? That's a tough word. Spellcheck hates it. Um, <laughs> and I can't check if I spelled that right. Um, conditional mortality. I think conditional mortality is, is, is really a good way to understand what's going on in annihilationism because... Conditional mortality basically looks at you don't get an eternal life apart from Jesus. So unless you get on board with what Jesus is doing and the Spirit is doing, then you're just going to die and you will cease to exist. So, so the ability to live beyond this physical world is not assumed. That's only the gift that God gives you. And so here are some of the passages that uh, the annihilationist uh, camp would use to justify that point of view. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father and mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So in this passage, you get eternal life by leaving these things to follow Jesus. Matthew twenty five forty six. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now that's a pan- this is a passage right here, where the eternal conscious torment people would say the punishment is actually eternal because you're gonna you're gonna be alive and experience it forever. Uh, the annihilationist would say no. The eternal part means you will never come back from it. You're going to be done. <laughs> so does that make sense? Um, most famous passage in the New Testament, for God so loved the world and he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish is a word of finality, but have eternal life. John three thirty six, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. John four fourteen. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5, 24, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death into life. Um, John 6, 40. John 6, 40. <laughs> For my Father's will is that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Again, we see this, this idea that you don't just get to continue existing apart from God's life. 
Um, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. 654, John. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. John 6, 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And we finally get out of the book of John into Romans 5.21. So that just as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right. Does anybody got any questions about the contrast between these or any observations? Now, I didn't, I didn't even know annihilationism was, like, a view till about, like, 2004. I just thought, like, the only view out there was eternal conscious torment. Uh, it was actually in reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce where I was actually uh, bumped into the concept of annihilationism. Uh, and I moved from the eternal conscious torment camp to the annihilationist camp uh, back in probably 2004 because uh, I, I think when you begin to look at these terms like Gehenna and stuff like this, and you, you start looking at these words, it makes a little sense to me that you just cease to exist. Um, I ain't trying to tell you how to believe, but that's kind of the position I kind of transitioned to probably back 2003, 2004. Yeah, so, so C.S. Lewis has this imaginative work and it, it's it's just it's so creative i'm in awe of how he could come up with stuff like this uh he's basically flying in this flying bus and they're leaving hell which is called Greytown, and and Greytown is like an unending subdivision that just goes off as far as the eye can see but most of the homes are empty because the people in hell can't get along with each other and so C.S. Lewis sees it that whatever trajectory you are on um, in this life, you continue on that trajectory into the hereafter. So if you are working at being a loving, compassionate, merciful, truthful, just person in this world, you're going to be, when you move into the hereafter, you're going to keep growing in that and, and what, this is the interesting thing that C.S. Lewis hits on. He says the people in heaven are substantive. They're, they're, they're solid. The people in hell are like ghosts walking upon the earth. They're, they're just a shadow of who they were. N.T. Wright, the, the famous modern um, biblical New Testament scholar, probably one of the, the uh, most well-known biblical scholars of our day, uh, seems to lean in this position a bit, uh, but N.T. Wright would kind of put it like sin, the more that we sin, the more, the less human we become. So if you think, if you've ever known somebody who's been in the clutches of addiction, like heroin or something, uh, if you've ever known somebody in that, it's horrible. Their will is compromised. I mean, they, they, they do things that, that no human being would do. They, 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 their, their will is compromised. And, and C.S. Lewis and N.T. Wright, they would actually see that, that after death, we just continue on this, this thing. And so the interesting thing from C.S. Lewis's point of view is that this bus takes people from hell to the outskirts of heaven, and all of a sudden all these people come 
out from heaven to, to invite their friends and loved ones to, like, why don't you stay here? You know, the doors are open. Come on in. But this is the interesting thing because the people from hell, their hearts are so hardened by their sin. So they got so much pride. They're like, I don't need your charity. I w- why would I want to be in there with all you stuck up, you know, holier than thou people? And so it's, it's, very, it's a very creative thing that, um, but C.S. Lewis basically sees that the ultimately uh, in this gray town, you become more and more isolated from your fellow man. You become less and less human until finally, eventually, you just dissolve away into the ether. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's, that's an interesting concept, too, because even in Revelations, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I'll bring this up maybe at the end. But even in Revelations, we see all this talk about the lake of fire and throwing the devil and his angels and all the bad people in the lake of fire. But... Then you find out at the, at the very end of the book of Revelations that the gates of the city are never shut and that there's all these people who you think just got burned up, but now they're outside the city gates. And then you see the, the book of Revelation closes and the spirit and the bride say, come, come to the waters and be healed. So it's a weird thing. And that's, that's part of the problem with Revelation. It's, it's like a spiritual acid trip or something. It's so weird. Uh, it's hard to make sense of it in a literal thing, but th- that is one of the things that, you know, where, where there is some of that, and I think C.S. Lewis hit on this, that, you know, maybe when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, maybe there's still going to be people outside the gates. Maybe it's people, for them, it's what they would call hell, and maybe the invitation of those in the city is, is come to the waters, be healed. And maybe, like in C.S. Lewis's book, maybe they're just going like, why would I want to hang up with, hang out with all you holier-than-thou, stuck-up Christians, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Um, so, any questions, any other questions about this before I get into the last view? All right. Christian universalism. <laughs> Everything I've said up until now, what? No, 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 no. It's not from C.S. Lewis. I said C.S. Lewis is one who ascribed to that belief. He didn't invent it. No. No, like with all these concepts, I mean. At some point, somebody has to solidify them into a concept. So, I mean, that's what theology is, you know, whether it's Calvinism or Protestant. Well, and, and, and this, is, this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this class, because I think most people growing up in America would think that this is the only view. In reality, every one of these views that I'm listing have about the same amount of scriptures that's backing them up. And as you can tell, it's not, they're not making a stretch here. I mean, and, and I'm fixing to get into one that, that's probably a, a little bit controversial. But there's a lot of scriptures that, that you could take that way. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, yeah, m- many of these that I used under the eternal conscious torment, the annihilation would say, oh, yeah, I agree with the same thing. But I don't agree that the punishment goes on eternally. It's that the punishment is, yeah, the effects of the punishment is, is eternal. Like, there's no coming back from it. It's destruction. And I think, really, you know, going back to Gehenna, if we keep Jesus in the prophetic line of, of Jeremiah, and Jesus is saying the similar things that Jeremiah was saying and was said back in Second Kings and said in Isaiah about Gehenna, I think Jesus was actually standing in that prophetic line, and he was saying the exact kind of things to Jerusalem, and he was speaking about an exact moment where if you don't turn around and embrace what God's doing, you're going to be destroyed, you know? Jesus wasn't saying you're going to burn in flames forever, you know, after. He's like, no, like, like Rome's going to, you know, if you don't learn the ways of peace and learn how to love your enemies and, and, and be compassionate and, and do these things, the, the good works of God, if you don't learn how to do that and start being a light, you know, God's protection's not going to be on you anymore. You're going to be destroyed. I think, um, how many have watched Breaking Bad? Not that I'm recommending it, but we, we recently revisited that and, uh, yeah, it was Dina's first time. I saw it a few years ago, but I, I, boy, what a parable for hell as a reality, you know? Like Walter White, he starts out as a good guy, high school chemistry teacher, and then just decides to make a little money, making a little meth on the side, but then something in him wakes up that he shouldn't have woken up, and now he becomes overcome by greed and pride and violence, and you see it is a path of destruction, and he goes down, and spoiler alert, he goes down in blades of glory, but uh, um, I thought, wow, what a picture of hell, and, and this is one of the questions I want to ask, uh, you can be thinking of, um, whether you believe in an eternal hell or not, how might it change us if we treated hell as an actual reality in this world right now? You know, going back to what I started this conversation with, those three women who were locked up in cages and sexually abused for 10 years, don't tell me that's not hell. There's people all over the world experiencing hell right now. What if we actually looked at ourselves as people who can bring heaven into the hell that people are going through all around us? What if we looked at hell, uh, not, not to say you have to give up the eternal dimensions, but I think sometimes we in the evangelical church focus so much about this disembodied existence after this world that we just ignore the, the living hells that are going on all around us uh, in our world. Um, but I'm, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Let's, let's finish this last thing. Uh, Christian universalism. John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Acts three twenty one. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. Uh, I guess that would be restore everything. Romans 5.18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Romans 11.32, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. 
1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 28, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to destroy it is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son of Man himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all and in all. Um, I think this is probably one of the more compelling arguments for Christian universalism. And by, by the way, I didn't define this. Christian universalism is different from regular universalism. You know, there is kind of a pluralistic idea in our world right now that, man, just serve whatever God you want. We'll all end up, you know, you know, just pick whatever religious path you want. Christian universalism is not that. It's, it's the idea that ultimately everybody will one day stand before Jesus, but when they see Jesus in his glory and his love, um, I, I, I've heard it put this way. Um, we're going to call this the fires of God. <laughs> Doesn't look much like anything. Um, <laughs> uh, I heard a, 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 an Orthodox guy, Greek Orthodox, uh, it's, it's interesting. In the Orthodox tradition, they have this view called the harrowing of hell. Uh, there's this passage, I think it's in First Peter, that talks about like after Jesus was crucified uh, on that Saturday, he went to hell and preached freedom to the captives. So, so a lot of people in the Greek Orthodox tradition say, uh, if there is a hell, it's probably empty because Jesus emptied it on Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But another view that I've heard in the Orthodox thing is that in the Orthodox belief, which, by the way, Orthodox goes way back. Uh, it's next to the Catholic Church. They, well, actually, Orthodox and Catholic were the same church at one point before they split. But one idea that the Orthodox have, and this would tie into Christian universalism, is that when we think about it, how many of us are actually free? I mean, do any of you do things that you don't, that you wish you wouldn't do? Anybody? Is it just me? Uh, you know, we've all got compulsions. We've all got things like, doggone it. You know, I wanted to eat a salad for lunch today, but I ate canes instead. I don't know what made me do that. But I even, you know, looked canes up in my Google Maps and stuff. Like, I mean, I was like, I was determined to sin. Uh, we all have our will, the, even the most free among us, the people who've been raised in the best homes, we all have certain compulsions. We do things that we don't want to do. Our will is compromised a bit. And so the idea that, that I've heard in the Greek Orthodox Church is um, when we stand before God, we will experience the fire of God's love. But if you have been on a trajectory like Walter White, uh, where you've been selfish and greedy and violent, uh, if you've been on that trajectory your whole life, then you're going to experience that fire of God's love as God's judgment. But it's the same fire. But that fire will burn away everything of you that is not God so that you will be free for the first time in your life to respond to God. And so then the question is, when you're completely free... And you experience God's love right in front of your face. Why would you not embrace God? I mean, you'd be silly not to. So 
kind of on the there there are various aspects of Christian universalism, but one of the the aspects would be that there is that it's not that there is no hell, but that that, that hell is burning away the stuff of God that is is not there, so that you can re- freely respond to God, and that ultimately the idea would be ultimately everybody. Given enough time and eternity, everybody will ultimately turn to God, and and God will be reconciled with everybody. Um, oh yeah, I, yeah. Andy. Yeah, yeah. There's some of that, and and some of them would see hell even as kind of a purgatory. So, which actually is not far off from some of Hades. The original thing of Hades is that Hades was was not meant to be a permanent destination. You might spend a very long time there, but it was uh, kind of a purging process. Um, in the First Corinthians passage, um, how many of y'all chose to be born into sin? <laughs> uh, nobody did, you know, we didn't p- choose to be born this way. And, and so Paul's argument right here is that in the same way that we didn't choose to be born into sin, but we were, uh, in the same way, Jesus has come as the second Adam. And so Paul's logic is that what Jesus is doing, uh, actually inserts life into humanity. And this is one question theologically to wrestle with. Is Jesus dying on the cross, did it fundamentally change reality for everybody? Has everybody been reconciled to God already? And some people just haven't, you know, chosen to, you know, which, which is what Paul says. Paul says, God's already been reconciled to us. So we plead with the world, you be reconciled to God. So from God's vantage point, it's a whole new thing. We just have to respond to it. So that's kind of the logic that um, Paul's getting at there. Second Corinthians 5.19 that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's the one I just quoted. Okay. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which is where Hades would be, and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. First Timothy two four, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Titus two eleven, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Hebrews two nine. But we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. First John 2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some want to understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. All right, there's your Christian universalism, your annihilationism, and your eternal conscious torment. So, let's go through these for a moment. What are the 
what are the positives to eternal con- <laughs> eternal conscious torment? I mean, what what uh, what is good about this? <laughs> Justice, okay. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think you can, you, you, you hear this, you hear this in movies, you know, go to hell, you know. We, we, we want people like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot, and we want them, we want to believe that they're going to burn forever for what they've done, you know, like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. So, so I, I say, I think the biggest plus for the eternal conscious torment view is justice, that there is justice. Now, the biggest downside is justice because part of the problem that we see with... (laughs) I'm doing an inverted dyslexic question mark here. Uh, Gosh, I'm just going to stop drawing question marks. Um, Part of the problem is it's we can think of it just in one sense, but where in the Bible... Does God ever create a law that has a punishment that goes on forever? I mean, like, look at the Old Testament. It's, as Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that, that was the law in the Old Testament. The punishment fit the crime. So in a sense, to torture somebody eternally for a finite sin, no matter how egregious that finite sin is, you could actually call into question of if that is just. Even somebody like Hitler, it's like, okay, we've, we've burned him for two million years. Is, is he done? <laughs> um, maybe you get used to it after a while. Maybe it's like, you know, being in a hot tub, just like, ah, no. Uh, which, this, this is the fascinating thing. Um, when I was, <laughs> you want to share something with the rest of the class? Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> I know, but they're sitting at your table, so I didn't know if they're laughing at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, when I was reading this book, The Four Views of Hell, the opening chapter is on eternal conscious torment, and uh, I, I, this guy did more to, in his pro argument to convince me to push me away from ever considering that idea again. Uh, just because it, it was so, he actually because to to stay with Orthodox Christian uh, teaching, we believe in a resurrection. The resurrection, by the way, if you go back to the early church, there wasn't a, in the earliest Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. There's not anything about hell, um, or, or the, you know, there is something about Jesus, you know, preaching to the captives, but that's it. Um, but uh, where was I going? I was going somewhere, going to hell. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, now I'm, I'm, I'm halfway back, but. Oh, yeah. So, one of the main points that, that a lot of Protestantism has abandoned is the idea of the resurrection. You know, we tend to think, and again, this is an idea that has come in popular culture, we tend to think that when we die, we're going to be little uh, disembodied spirits sitting up on clouds playing harps. Like, but 
the, the Christian hope is not that we would be ghosts up on clouds somewhere or angels, but that we would be resurrected with bodies, just like Jesus, you know, physical bodies. So this guy on the eternal conscious torment chapter, he gets into like, well, God's going to raise the wicked people from the dead and give them these special uh, physical bodies that can regenerate so they can keep burning. And and as he as he's explaining this, I'm like, that's... That's pretty sick to think of God like I'm going to come up with a special body that will burn to a crisp and then regenerate and then burn. You know, I'm like, wow, this is this is a Bible scholar who wrote the that that's his opening chapter on why to believe in eternal conscious torment. I'm like, you're not doing very good at convincing me, and and he got worse, um, but I won't get into that. So probably the biggest proponents of eternal eternal conscious torment would say that it provides justice. Now, uh, conditional mortality, annihilation is, I'm going to just go with conditional mortality because I can spell that. What are the advantages to this view as you see it? This is the one where... (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) True. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I am a thief. Sorry. Basis. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, that's another mountain. You know, it's not a station, it's not something that's controversial. You know, to me, conditional mortality kind of fits that that having the option yeah. to reject. Um, I think it's that John, I think John 17, those reject the light. Yeah. Right. Don't be too open to it.
did Judy, you, I'm going to get to you, Andy. She's had her hand up for a little bit. Well, you know, it, it, there's there's various speculations on this, but yeah, one one idea would be you die and you're, it's just over. Um, another idea would be that everybody is resurrected, and then those who um, are are going to be yeah, those who don't make the cut will go off into the fire and they'll just be burned up. They'll be consumed, and that's it. Um, then some have even gone to, to like what you're saying, where they will be punished for a period of time to fit the crimes that they've committed, and then they will cease to exist. But, yeah. <coughs> yes. Uh, annihilation, conditional mortality. Sorry. <coughs> Terminal punishment. Yeah. Uh-oh. But there, there are books like Divine Boss. Yeah. And I know of a prophet, a modern-day prophet, that I respect a lot, that actually died, and he saw, he went up to heaven, he saw people being accepted into heaven, and then people being ushered into hell. And he said an interesting, can't even say how he said it, but he said like, sin that like if, if uh, greed and money was your thing in life that that's what you you live for that in hell oh wow yeah pursuing that it's yeah. kind of one of his books yeah but he did say he said 98% of the people in the world and I respect this guy a lot because he's got who is it Oh, Bob Jones, yeah. I was just about to say he's in hell. 98% will not be in hell, or not be in heaven. 98%. Well, and that, yeah. And, that, and that's, I think. That's right. <laughs> Well, and, and again, this, this is probably one of, uh, I think, one of my biggest objections. And, and this is, um, you know, I read a book a few years ago on hell that the, the author said, does God get what he wants in the end? And, you know, does, does love actually win out? And, and see, I would say under that view of hell, then hell is actually stronger than the love of God, you know? Like that, that sin is actually sin actually wins because if God can only get two percent of the of the people He's created in His image to be with Him in the end, then there's nothing very compelling about God's love. There's no power in it. I mean, sin is actually more powerful than God. I would say, but I don't know. Yeah. And how 
image, which damn us because of a lack of intellect. And it must be a lack of intellect, wouldn't it? It's definitely not yeah. some deep-seated want to go to hell. Yeah. Right? It, so we're made in the image of God. So, there, so if we were, if I was my true self, truly who I was created to be, would I not be accepting of the love of God? Of course I wouldn't. I, yeah. I think that most people at least who follow the Christian faith would come to that conclusion. Yeah. And then so I'm being damned to eternal damnation forever based on a lack of understanding. Yeah, and, and you didn't choose to be born into sin either. And, that, and that's... Right, yeah. That's on a good day. It's on a good day. <laughs> yeah, well, and I... And I, and I think that, that that gets, you know, kind of philosophically to, to part of the problem and why I, I think that that's, that's such a sticking point is, is, you know, we didn't choose to be born into a world of sin. We didn't be choose, to, choose to, we didn't ask for this. And so it, it, does, it, it does seem to give some, some, some problems along that way. I, I would say, you know, kind of in, in bringing this back around, um, I think the 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 good thing about conditional mortality, I think this one probably out of all three balances justice and love the best way, you know, because um and there there are some yeah, I would I would consider myself a an annihilationist, conditional mortalitist that is a, a hopeful universalist. <laughs> so I kinda have a <laughs> I, I kind of put myself in a hybrid because when I when I do look at, at passages like uh, every knee will bow at every tongue on heaven and earth uh, shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I mean, most of y'all who come to church, y'all know that's one of my favorite passages. But I remember as a young Christian thinking, oh, well, here's how this is going to work. Jesus is going to come in on his white horse. He's going to go bow before the king and everybody's going to be cowering down. But if we look at this in context, Paul is actually saying, in your relationships with one another, consider Jesus. You know, seek the benefit of others. Walk in humility. Love one another. Work through things. Be like Jesus. Well, does Jesus is like, you can't like merge what Paul has just said with Jesus is going to come through. And the, All right, now that you've all bowed down, 98% of you, y'all are going to get burned up right now. Like you... Uh, so, and this is, this is, you know, Philippians 2 is really, Bible scholars say that's one of the earliest passages of, that's the, one of the early songs of the church. We see the theology of the early church right there. Did you have something to say? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's where that's where we get. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, which that that's a great point, because, you know, the Bible says at the end that Jesus is going to be the judge, like it's all authority has been given to him. And like, if I can look at anybody in the whole Bible that I would want to be judging me, it would be Jesus, because we see how Jesus judges people. I mean, we see even on the cross, you know. We don't really need God over here. Well, and and going back to what you said real quick, I, I think this is one of the... Pro- yeah. She said she was just bringing up the point that there are a few other scriptures about hell, and then she brought up that one, you know, one of the ways that, you know, per, perhaps that, you know, we've come up with these theories. Like, I know in the church there's this, this idea of the age of accountability. That's always been kind of a weird thing. And then, you know, if you look at a lot of Catholic churches, it's like, man, we got to baptize that baby quick just to make sure that it doesn't die without being baptized. And you get into a lot of, and I see, I think a lot of that just gets very superstitious. And, and honestly, when do you ever see Jesus leading people to pray the prayer to invite him into their heart? Or, you know, Jesus just says, follow me. You know, even that guy on the cross, you know, he didn't pray the sinner's prayer. Jesus didn't say, admit you're a sinner. He's like, can you just remember me when you come into your kingdom? Yeah, you'll be with me. And <laughs> so it's, so, and, but this is where I think the idea of even purgatory um, kind of came up was that, okay, uh, maybe, maybe, there is, maybe there is a purging process that, that, that makes us ready for the kingdom of God. Um, you know, part of this, I, I love, I'm a, I've been, um, in, in my spare time, I like to study physics. And so I've been studying physics, uh, on the side just cause I love it. I don't understand it, but I love it. But there is this, this huge divide between classical physics and quantum physics. You know, like there's, there's all these, you know, stuff that Einstein came up with, E equals MC squared, that makes sense, and they've predicted the size of galaxies and the speed of light, and they've figured out all these different... But then when they scan down to the most... uh, It's not even microscopic. It's smaller than that. When they get down to the smallest particles, yeah, subatomic, they... Nothing makes sense. You know, you can have a particle in two places at one time. You know, everything gets all screwy. (laughs) And your belief, yeah, so you get all these, and so I, I think, and that's part of the reason I want to do this thing tonight, is not to give you the definitive answer on this, but that we have to kind of hold some of these things in tension. I will flat out, you know, I, I, I just can't go along. I hope that there's no such thing as eternal conscious torment, because I, there's no way that I can make that 
match the God revealed in Jesus. I just can't go there. If you can, that's great. Um, you'll probably be in hell. Um, just kidding. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do think... I, I do think the end of the day that what we're trying to answer with both of these things is justice and love, and how do we hold those together? Uh, I, I think conditional mortality seems to hold those to intention. Uh, universal reconciliation or Christian universalism, um, the downside for that for most people is like, well, I don't want to be in heaven with Hitler. You know, like, how could we... Uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know, because so, so under the universal reconciliation or Christian universalism, the, probably the downside that a lot of people say is where's the justice in that? If everybody gets to go to heaven when they die, then why does it matter how you live on this earth? Uh, you got, you got something? Everyone I disagree with is Hitler. No, no, I'm sorry. I probably should have stuck with the same. I just went with conditional mortality because it was easier to write than annihilationism. But um, let's call it annihilationism. And I just was writing Christian universalism underneath. This is a separate topic, though. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's what it means. Yeah. Yeah, so basically hell under annihilationism is you cease to exist. So you only get to live forever through Jesus. So it is only in submitting your life to Christ that you get eternal life. It's not eternal life and then eternal torturing. It's eternal life or death. It's either life or destruction. Well, and, and I think, I mean, honestly, I think if you, no, I mean, like, I, I can't think of, and I don't want to be tested on this, I can't think of anything that would make me completely cut my kids off, like, I don't want, but I know people who are estranged from their kids, so I don't want to get cocky, but, but yeah, it, it does seem, it does seem like if we ran into any world leader on this planet right now, who punished somebody and tortured them for decades, no matter what they did, we would think that that world leader was a sicko. And as soon as we found that out, we would, like, take them to The Hague and, and treat them for war crimes. Uh, real quick. Uh. I, this whole topic kind of goes hand in hand with the discussion. 
C.S. Lewis. I'm gonna let Noah share this because it's relevant. Yeah. So in the Narnia series, which was also written by C.S. Lewis, the last book is called the the Final Battle, I believe. And there's a young man in that book who finds himself in the presence of Aslan, who's Jesus' surrogate, and uh, and he he's he's beside himself because he you know he's he realizes that he's been wrong. He serves this other god, and uh, named Tash, and uh, and Aslan tells him, "My nature is so different from the nature of Tash that anything good you did to him." is attributed to me, and anything evil that people do in my name is attributed to Tash. So it's, it's one of those interesting things where the goodness in people, C.S. Lewis saw that as, in a sense, a manifestation of us worshiping God, whether we recognize it or not. Well, and that's why I say there's there's a spectrum there's a spectrum of beliefs on all of these things, and and so you know I, yeah we don't know. Hopefully we won't answer that tonight. But the question is, if you if you walk out there and get hit by a car tonight, would you be annihilated or no? Um, <laughs> uh, we can't answer. But I I do think I mean even going to the sheep and goats passage, what Jesus says you know, whatever you did or didn't do to me, uh, to these little ones you didn't do to me. And, and, and it's interesting because both groups, the sheep and the goats, are like, when did, we, when did we feed you? Like, there is a sense that certain people are serving God without even knowing it. They're ministering to God without even knowing it. And then there's certain people from that same passage that probably think they're in and yet, when they're confronted with, when did you never fed me? You never visited me? Well, when did we see you? Well, 
it's the way you treated like the least people in society. And that's a, that's kind of a weird thing that like, like that, that Jesus even lays that down as the litmus test of who gets in. He doesn't put it in terms of praying a prayer or, 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 or agreeing with an idea. It's actually demonstrated in your actions. So I, I do, I think C.S. Lewis is on to something. I do because I, I mean, honestly, that's been one of the like, fundamentalism and stuff like it works really well until you get outside your group and you actually start meeting people from these other groups that you were told to hate and you were told that they're reprobates and they're hateful and they're bringing society down and you're like wait these people look more like jesus than the people i've been surrounding myself with you know and 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 you really start so i mean i have confidence at the end of the day and this is i'll begin to wrap this up because it's probably about time i have confidence at the end of the day that jesus He's going to be our judge, and I'm glad that Jesus is going to be our judge. Um, but I think what we can see in all of this uh, is that how we live in this life actually matters, and how we treat people in this life actually matters. And that really, the more that we move in love in this life and compassion and mercy and walk in humility, the more we get our trajectory aligned with the kingdom of God. So we're prepared to enter into that. And so at the end of the day, that's what we want to be about. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I think Protestants have overemphasized that way too much because I think our works make a lot more difference than, than Protestantism has... As, I think it's the evidence. I think it's the evidence of our life. I think we've we've kind of put faith and works against each other, and I don't think they were ever meant to be against each other. Um, I, I don't care what you say you believe. If you treat people like crap, oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, in conclusion, I would say with all of this, I would say, yeah, we don't know. But I think these are great questions to ask because I think, I think we learn something about God as we, as we wrestle through this. We've learned something about the Bible and learned something about how to wrestle with the Holy Spirit. But my confidence at the end of the day is Jesus is going to be the judge. And I, I don't think any of us are going to end up in whatever version of the hereafter and go, you know, surprised or, or thinking that Jesus didn't do the right thing. I think we will see that Jesus was was merciful and compassionate and he did exactly what he said. And just at the same time. I don't think we'll see I think we'll see justice and mercy all exercised together. Um and so And if this idea of Jesus going and preaching to the captives, I mean, there's only one verse in the whole Bible about it, but if that was a true thing, that after Jesus was crucified on Friday, he goes to hell, where at that point, that'd be everybody in history up to that point, and he preaches the good news to them and sets them free, well, they got a good deal, you know, and we can, we can and, and that, but I, I don't want to major on that too much, because there's only one verse in the whole Bible about that, but... 
it, again, it, it gives us some insight into, you know, possibly how God thinks. But uh, anyway, have you all enjoyed this discussion? Has it been helpful to anybody? Okay. Well, I think we're going to do another one next month where we will dig into the issue. I'm thinking if I can pull this all off in one night, this is going to be harder than hell. <laughs> Uh, the atonement, uh, different views of the atonement. So um, did Jesus save us from our sins? Did Jesus save us from God? Uh, it's Jesus dying on the cross. Was that rescuing us from sin? Was it a matter of identifying with our humanity? Was it an expression of the incarnation? Um, these are kind of fun things to talk about as well. But again... As with all of these conversations, I think one of the biggest questions, and we really didn't ask this a lot tonight, is um, what, and I think Brandon put this, uh, by the way, thanks to Brandon for giving us these wonderful summaries of the three views you can take home. Uh, so in case I didn't explain it right, you can uh, read. <laughs> it's good having a seminary student on board. Um, but one of the questions we look at in each of these three summaries is what does this view reveal about God? And if I was to believe this about God, how would this affect my spiritual formation? Because I think that's a great question to ask because I can tell you there are some ideas that if you go down the certain doctrinal ideas, they make you into a jerk uh, towards other people. So how does the fruit of God manifest in your life as you, as you focus in on this idea of God. So uh, keep that in mind, and we'll be looking at that even with the next talk as well. So we'll probably be doing this next one in October sometime. Uh, we'll do a dinner and discussion. And All right. Who said you couldn't have dinner and talk about hell? All right. Well, uh, we're going to pack up and call it an evening. Thank you all for coming.